The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Three weeks ago, a federal court in Texas invalidated two Republican-drawn congressional districts saying they were unconstitutionally designed to dilute the clout of minority voters. But this week, the U.S. Supreme Court intervened. Splitting along ideological lines, the justices voted five to four to put the lower court ruling on hold and, in all likelihood, ensure that the disputed districts will be used for the 2018 elections. The high court issued a similar order in a separate case over Texas state legislative districts. The court didn't provide any explanation, but the orders nonetheless alarmed some voting rights advocates, underscoring the power of the Supreme Court's conservative majority as we head toward next year's midterm elections. With us to talk about all this is Richard Berfault. He's a professor at Columbia Law School. And Nate Persley, who teaches at Stanford Law School. Both are election law experts and regular guests here on Bloomberg Law. Um, Nate, this is really complicated litigation. It's been up and down the court system. Um, let's just try to start simply, if we could, with the, the issue with the congressional districts. Can you tell me what it was that the lower court found that was wrong with the way those districts were put together? So in both of these cases, the question is whether the state has either used race excessively in the drawing of these lines or diluted the votes of African Americans and Latinos, either intentionally or in effect uh, with uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And so uh, here in the congressional districts, which have, <laughs> by implication, they, these districts and every election that has been run under them since 2000 uh, have been uh, unconstitutional uh, because race uh, was, uh, you know, they, they were dilutive or intentionally discriminatory uh, in the way that they constructed several of these districts. And so the, the district court, three-judge court, wanted them to be redrawn. That's been stayed. And as you said, it's, uh, we don't know whether then they'd be, have, have a chance to redraw them before the 2018 election. Rich, tell us what the various arguments the state made to the Supreme Court. Well, uh, the most recent thing the, the, the state was able to argue at the, unsuccessfully in the lower court, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was that um, whatever uh, if these districts had been through the litigation mill several times, that the most recent round, because they were adopted, uh, the most recent round reflected a certain uh, interim plans that were adopted by a court, and the legislature essentially adopted the court's interim plan. So that would have purged the taint that may have been put in from the earlier plans, which were found to be discriminatory. In addition, I think the, 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 the state argues to the Supreme Court that, frankly, they should be given time to um, that any interim remedy should be blocked, uh, and that the that the current plan should continue to be used pending uh, a full discussion by the court. And, and Nate, what's the counter to that argument by the state? So, if indeed these disputed districts are basically just the same districts that uh, a court had ordered as, as an interim remedy a, a few years ago, how could they not be acceptable now? 
Well, this is a familiar argument and one that's actually playing out with the Texas voter ID law as well, uh, and because there was an interim sort of plan that the court had accepted, and then nevertheless, they later found that it was unconstitutional. And with these interim emergency remedies, the argument is, well, uh, this is just what the court adopts to have something in place for an election. Uh, it is not saying that it's def- definitely legal or constitutional. Uh, that requires full litigation. But you, you know, the thing about elections is you've got to have districts in place in order to know who can run from where. And so these were sort of emergency procedures to put in place, but they hadn't sort of fully aired all the constitutional questions. So, Rich, the court's brief Tuesday order uh, just uh, just lets us know who is on which side of letting this go forward. Do we have any reason to know how the court decided or why they decided the way they did? Well, the, the court's order says nothing. It's just literally a stay. Uh, and the justices who would have denied the stay just said they would have denied the stay. So there's no substantive opinion either for the majority or for, I'll call them a dissent, although it's not technically a dissent. Um, so we don't really know what the reasoning is. Um, if we don't know whether, I mean, there's, there's really two big possibilities. One is that they disagree with the lower court's reading of the evidence of the um, the facts of intentional or or intentional discrimination or the discriminatory impact. That's a little hard because the court really has not had much time to assess the evidence. Uh, The other possibility is that it reflects a philosophy that suggests that uh, they would rather have the existing plans remain in place uh, pending full review, that uh, because the court has traditionally allowed districting to be a matter handled by legislatures, that rather than having the lower court begin a, uh, a redistricting process, they would want to hold, continue to use the, the currently invalid maps, keep them in place while the appeals process works its way through. Nate, let me ask you the the same question. To what extent can we take this five to four vote as a reflection that the of what the Supreme Court thinks about the the merits of the lower court ruling? Well, uh, it means that five of them at least are somewhat unsure as to whether uh, it should be codified immediately. I mean, that's, that's all we can sort of say, but I agree with Richard's basic take. But let's just abstract it out for a second, which is that this, these cases dealing with race and redistricting are extremely knotty and fact-intensive. We've had cases at the Supreme Court in the last few years from Alabama, North Carolina, and Virginia, all raising very similar issues to what we see here. Um, and what, what, ha- what you see is that the jurisdictions feel they're put in a box where they have to use race in order to uh, comply with the Voting Rights Act. But if they use race too much, then it's going to violate the Constitution. And in the background of all of this is the partisan interests that are at, are the partisan interests that are at stake because um, most of these districts and these dilution claims are happening in the context of partisan gerrymanders. We're talking about the Supreme Court action this week, reinstating two Republican-drawn congressional districts that had been ordered redrawn by a lower court. Our guests are Nate Persley of Stanford Law School and Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. Rich, when this uh, when this order came out from the Supreme Court, or these orders, uh, two of them in two separate cases, um, I, I sensed a lot of uh, 
uh, worrying on the left about the implications of this. And it, it sort of went along the lines of, if you thought we had Anthony Kennedy, who's kind of the swing vote on the court in these issues, if you th- we thought we had him on voting rights issues, um, this is evidence that we're mistaken. Do you think that concern is warranted in light of what the court did this week? Well, that's hard to answer. These are stays of, of lower court decisions. It's not happy news. I mean, after all, he did go along with the stays. But I think uh, rulings on stays like this are just not quite enough uh, to hang your hat on or to be, to be fully depressed. On the other hand, it is more a negative than a positive sign if it's a sign of anything. Nate, I, I want to go back for, to, uh, for a moment to what the state was arguing. That, you know, it was such a short time for them to go redraw the maps. You've drawn legislative maps and been involved in that. Would it have been too difficult for them to redraw these maps before the midterm elections? No, they, they can draw them right now. It would take really a day to do it. I mean, the actual process of drawing it to remedy these constitutional problems, because it's not the whole plan. It's just a few districts. And, they, and frankly, there have always already been proposed remedial maps. It would just be up to the court to uh, decide on them. Right now, I mean, w- w- what's happened, and this is what always happens in redistricting litigation, is that the state is trying to just have more and more process so it gets closer and closer to the 2018 election so that then it will be impossible to redraw the maps. And so the, the, the consequence of this is that the primaries, I believe, are for the Congress, congressional elections in Texas are March 2018. If the Supreme Court orders full hearing on this, uh, they will probably consider whether to grant hearing uh, in November or how to resolve the case. And then uh, uh, a decision is likely to come after those primary elections. And so then it may very well be too late. I mean, you could redraw the elections and rerun primary elections. That's happened before. Uh, But more likely, they'll let them go into place for yet one more election. Rich, one of the arguments the voting rights side made in this case was uh, this lower court uh, order is not a final one. Uh, it's not a final judgment until they uh, order a, a new new map. Uh, in light of that argument, is it surprising to you that the Supreme Court chose to jump in now as opposed to waiting? Again, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the court, there is a feeling, as Nate indicates, um, by jumping in now, they've effectively barred any remedy. Uh, if, if the court were to conclude that these plans were either unconstitutional or violated the Voting Rights Act, they've effectively barred any remedy for another couple of years. So you do wonder, to what extent, on the one hand, there is the argument for not uh, for allowing a full review before forcing a remedy, but you do wonder whether, to what extent, the court may have at least tentatively prejudged the ultimate decision. And Nate, as far as the question of whether this is ba- a bad sign for voting discrimination cases in the future, do you see it? Do you see it as a bad sign or any sign? Well, I, I think sort of the area of race and redistricting right now is sort of characterized by chaos, which is that the rules are in flux and uh, jurisdictions don't have clear direction, and they're afraid they're going to get sued no matter what. I think it is possible that the court here, by just preserving the status quo, is saying, look, we want to uh, uh, deal with the array of cases that are coming before us. Most significant one is the Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case that they're going to hear this year. Uh, And if they have a kind of pro-voting rights opinion there, that will throw not only this case, but all cases dealing with partisanship and redistricting the race into uh, flux, and so that then the courts may be redrawing a lot of plans. 
Rich, one issue that is lurking is in in various cases. I'm actually not sure if it's in this one, but the the, the notion of putting Texas back under a pre-clearance regime where they would have to get approval from the federal government, either the Justice Department or a court, uh, to change their voting rules. Um, what's the status of that effort, and does does what happened this week have any effect on it? Well, it certainly does. So as you as you as your question indicates, as we all know, there was a time when Texas was subject to preclearance, that is to say, any changes in its voting practices or procedures, including its maps, would require Justice Department approval before they could take effect. The Supreme Court's 2013 decision in Shelby County <clears throat> eliminated that requirement. But there is a provision of the Voting Rights Act. It hasn't been used that much. It has been used sometimes, but not a lot, called the so-called bail-in provision that says that a court could decide that if a jurisdiction commits serious and repeated Voting Rights Act violations, the court would create a preclearance requirement for future legal changes in that jurisdiction or some or all of potentially a voting right, voting law changes in that jurisdiction going forward. Texas has now had two, at least two different sets of litigations where there's been these involving the redistricting maps and also another one involving their voter ID law, hey. in which courts have found intentional discrimination. So Rich, I'm afraid we're going to have to, we're going to, have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank Richard Brafalt and Nate Persley for talking to us about the Supreme Court's action this week on voting districts in Texas. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.